Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solvetto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I finally have my reading glasses. I think I mentioned this maybe five episodes ago that I, I think I need glasses. So I went and did the um, the appointments at the uh, at the store, and I went to another store to do another eye exam, just you know to get the second opinion. So at the ripe age of forty five, I'm now amazed that I can read a screen and actually see things clearly. I thought I did, but now when I put on the glasses, when I come to my home office, I'm like, well, I can actually see crystal clear now. And I've spoken to people about best practices of having glasses because I've, I've never had glasses. And somebody said to me, you need four pairs of glasses, one in the car, one at the office, one on the kitchen table. And I was like, yeah, let me get four pairs. But then I heard how much they actually cost you. So <laughs> I, I am going with one pair. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've had glasses ever since I was 16 because that's in Sweden when you, you're allowed to start uh, test driving ahead of your driver's license with your parents. And I realized I was half blind. They wouldn't let me out of the store without a, a pair of lending glasses that they put on me because I couldn't read the street signs. I couldn't even read like on the on the opposite side of the road. And we're talking about 20 meters, which is not a very long way. I could not read the huge signs that said uh, like the, the names of the restaurants and the names of the shops. So I was always surprised all my friends knew how to read that stuff. And I'm like, whoa, I just remembered them because in the town I lived, I knew each place, so I, I didn't have to read it. So that was a, an epiphany for me. On my end, I am ordering an IKEA couch off the type sofa bed. So now I can have parties in my office, but more so we can have guests coming over. And I really like these kind of new configurations that you do with IKEA, because we also looked at a kitchen recently and how to get a new kitchen. And they had this uh, you know, online experience. You go, go in there and, you, and they say, how do you want to build your couch? And you select the colors and you select modules and you you just go in and click, well, I want two of these and I want this to be a foldable sofa bed thing. And I want one one of those chaislongs or you know whatever you call them, the day beds thing attached to it. And I want that to be a hatch so I can open it and put stuff inside like pillows. And you just kind of configure things online and click the button and it says, well, this is your price. When do you want it? Uh, well, I want it next week. Okay, it's going to be on your doorstep by Tuesday. So that experience is super seamless, super cool. And I, I assume there's a lot of like computing and, and you know resources going into making sure these tools actually work the way they do. I've never had issues with the planning tools that they offer on their website. And I'm super surprised, but also super happy that they have this very modern approach to, to doing things. And uh, apart from that, not much has happened since we spoke last time. I'm just eager to get my teeth into this episode. Sounds good. I, I have to admit, I haven't been to an IKEA website in, in a couple of years, but I, I need to check out if they have something similar here in Finland. So today's episode is back to basics, securing Azure in three steps. So we thought it would be fun to do this sort of a back to basic episode, a, a more like a level 100 episode. The intention being that we revisit some of the fundamental concepts on Azure, especially now on security. And I feel I often learn something new when I sort of 
give myself permission to go back to the basics to see if there's something I missed. Do you ever do the same, Toby? Yeah, I think repetition is good, but also, you know, there are so many things happening in the cloud and so many changes happening with these products. So going back to the basics, if you want to call it that, I think makes sense, not just because it's a good way to kind of remember the baseline and remember the checklist that we have to take a look at and things like that, but also going back to the basics, like if you go back to the docs for the product or for, for one of those products, you might realize that there's a lot of things that changed since the last time you, you actually worked with it or since you set it up. So there might be a good opportunity to learn something new as well. Uh, but but I think this is a, it's a good idea. Um, and I, I think we also wanted to do an episode on this because not everyone tuning in is a security expert. We know a lot of people are, uh, you know, heavily involved with different parts of Azure. But if you're an Azure developer and you work with Azure Functions and serverless and containers, you may be, you know, one of the best developers out there and, and you might be super productive in your organization, but you might not think much about the security angles, right? And, and how to secure your infrastructure. So there's always something I think to uh, to learn from those episodes going back to the kind of level 100, like you mentioned. So I, I really think this is a good idea. And I'm sure that I will pick up a couple of things that I forgot along the way as well, or that I haven't worked with. So I, I think this is a good angle for an episode, definitely. I, I, I like this approach because again, back in the day, you would visit a company, they would perhaps have Active Directory, a couple of SQL servers, some file servers, the usual stuff you would have before the public cloud existed as we know it today. And somebody would ask, are we secure? Should we do something? And you could easily spend two months just going through the group policies, the permissions, the logs, the different tooling. But now with, with Azure specifically, and, and of course, obviously with Microsoft 365, it's less about building something new. It's more about understanding the, 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 the wide list of, of tooling and services and capabilities you have and choosing the right ones, and then, then you're good. So this episode is more tools and services oriented. So this will be less about well-architected framework, the cloud adoption framework, the cultural shift in security, the general zero trust stuff. We've spoken about all of those previously, and I, I think in the future, we'll definitely talk, talk more about those as well. So when we start, what three things do you need to secure Azure? Toby, which one would, would, would you sort of say is, is the primary thing here to focus on first? So I like just to go back to the question there, um, I think with the mindset, and I think, you know, coming back to you mentioned zero trust, we're not talking about that today, but like the mindset here is you can do these things to increase the security, but there is no such thing as being secure or being fully secure or 100% secure. So I think keep that in mind, whatever you do, it's a continuous journey of improving your security posture, but you will never be 100% secure, which is why it's a continuous journey. Uh, one of those things that come to mind, like if we're now talking about like the top three things that comes to mind, I would say Defender for Cloud. And I think we've taken that first spin a couple of times. Um, and it's this tool that kind of gives you one view, right? You get one dashboard or one view where you can see a lot of stuff. You get your security posture, you get secure score uh, recommendations based on 
compliance and saying that, well, these things are breaking NIST compliance or ISO compliance or SOC 2 uh, or SOC TSP compliance, whatever standards you're following. It says your storage account does not have the firewall enabled or your web app does not require an incoming SSL certificate or whatever the recommendation might be. And it's tying that to regulatory compliance, which I really like. So I worked a lot with those things in the past and uh, Defender for Cloud was one of the top tools that I used on a daily basis, but also to kind of, when setting things up the first time, starting there to take a look at your cloud estate where Defender for Cloud would just do an evaluation and say, hey, this is your current landscape. We recommend that you fix all of these things and, and then you can kind of prioritize the work to get that done. So it's this kind of uh, one pane of glass to to see the overall security posture for your Azure, but also Google Cloud and AWS and hybrid stuff because it, it can integrate and connect to uh, other cloud providers as well, which is kind of nice. You can continuously assess things so you know your security posture. You can identify and track vulnerabilities from here. You can secure resources and, and coming back to the recommendations there. Um, you can harden resources and the services with Azure Security Benchmark and the AWS, um, AWS Security Best Practices Standard, stuff like this. Um, and I think that's also pretty cool to see the integration like multi-cloud because it's not about choosing one or the other cloud. Whatever cloud you're on, make sure you have everything you need to secure it. Right? And I think Defender for Cloud is doing what they can to really open that door for other clouds and realize not everyone is in Azure. And that's okay because multi-cloud is a thing and a lot of customers are multi-cloud. So instead of saying, well, you have to move to Azure, uh, Microsoft is saying, you don't have to move to Azure. Whatever you have in AWS or whatever, connect to it and then evaluate the resource and you can still use Microsoft Defender for Cloud for that. And then you have like Defender where you can, the Defender side, we can defend against different threats. You can detect and resolve threats to resources and services. Um, and I, I think there's a thin line between like detection of threats that then crosses over to something that we talked about a couple of times, Microsoft Sentinel, which is about threat hunting and, and threat analytics and, and you know getting the real insights. So I, I really like Microsoft Defender for Cloud. Um, I, I'd say this is my top one resource I would recommend if you're deploying things to Azure, if you've already deployed things to Azure, even if it's a QA or dev environment, doesn't matter. Make sure you enable this. Tick the box or, or flip the switch for Microsoft Defender for Cloud, enable that because it's not just about like making it super secure. Even if you have a subscription with only a few workloads, maybe it's dev, maybe it's QA, but it's also about learning, right? So you have your dev workloads, you're deploying them, infrastructure as code maybe is taking care of that for you. But at this point, it's a great idea to enable Microsoft Defender for Cloud, even in those subscriptions, to get a feeling if you're deploying the right things and if they're configured in an optimal way from a security angle. So you don't move on to the testing or, or user acceptance environments or the QA or, or even production environments without actually ensuring that things are configured according to optimal practices. And that's where Microsoft Defender for Cloud really shines. It does it automatically for you. Super cool. So that, that's really? my thoughts on, on Defender for Cloud. What about you? Really good insights. So Defender for Cloud, it was formerly known as Azure Security Center. And I, I sort of like the Defender for Cloud naming more. And as you mentioned, there's additional capabilities under DFC. 
So you can enable Defender for storage, Defender for containers, Defender for DNS, and so on and so forth. Obviously, enable those capabilities that you need to protect. If you don't use containers, there's no point in enabling Defender for containers because it, it doesn't do anything for you. Um, Defender for Cloud, it's there by default, but it's not configured. So if you spin up a new Azure subscription, you go to Defender for Cloud in the Azure portal, and then you do the initial settings, initial configuration. Fairly simple to get started with, and I would perhaps advise before we move on to the next topic, I would perhaps advise make a habit of opening Defender for Cloud in Azure portal at least once a week, obviously configure notifications and alerts and everything else, but make a habit of opening that once per week or even more just to see what's the general security landscape for all of your resources and assets. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And just to round that off, because we can talk a long time about Microsoft Defender for Cloud, and but just to round that up, if you're tuning in and you know about cloud security and, and like the kind of the broad pillars of cloud security, but not specifically at the Microsoft products, then Microsoft Defender for Cloud uh, covers like the two broad pillars of cloud security, which is cloud workload um, protection platform, CWPP or CWP, and cloud security posture management, CSPM. So if you're familiar with those acronyms or if you're familiar with those terms, uh, then Microsoft Defender for Cloud is that option on the Azure platform. What I often like thinking is that when you open Defender for Cloud, if you see something in red, it means you have to do something. So it's it's similar to PowerShell. If you sub see something in red, it means you're about to learn something. <laughs> Alrighty, the next one, Azure AD, Azure Active Directory. So there's a lot of capabilities in here. I, I think we could easily spend two full days just talking about each one of these. So perhaps it's more uh, beneficial for anybody listening on this that we sort of highlight the core capabilities, but we don't do a deep dive on, on, on any of these just now. And plenty of these we'll, we've already discussed in past episodes. But Toby, your thoughts on Azure Active Directory as of today? Yeah, that's a good question. A very broad question. It's I, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said that this is this is something that we can talk about for days. I think for any topic in Azure, especially the security aspects that both you and I worked a lot with in the past, we have probably many things to say or many opinions on on how you can get things done. Um, for Azure AD, like thinking security, um, there's a lot of capabilities. Like you have the security defaults. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, and security defaults is a way if you don't want to tangle in with conditional access and like all these a bit more um, complex features, if you want to call them that, then security defaults is something you can enable, which automatically requires all users to use MFA, requires all admins to have MFA enabled. Uh, it automatically blocks legacy authentication protocols, ergo protocols that, for example, don't require MFA. Um, it's got protected privilege uh, activities like uh, access to Azure portal, um, which is also really conditional access, but it does that for us. But if you then want to take that one step further and, and really change, like we only want admins to be able to call in from a specific device or from a specific location or 
from a specific region or whatever kind of thing you want to configure. That's why the name conditional access, it says we're going to grant you the access because you're authenticated correctly. Uh, but then the authorization is based on conditions that comes with that access where you can say, well, you have to be located here because your home office or the actual corp office has those IP ranges. Those are allowed to access the the admin account uh, and, and sign in. But if those conditions are not met, even if you have the right username and password and MFA codes, you're not getting in. So I would say that for me, that's top of mind security defaults. If you want to go the easy way or if you're getting started, always enable that. If you set up a new subscription, new tenant, enable that. You know, there's no way around it. You have to have it. If you don't have it, that means uh, you need to enable conditional access and, and like the the added protection this way and enforce and, and enable multi-factor authentication. So I'd say in my mind, security defaults uh, or conditional access, MFA, those are the things that come to mind on the top of my head. And then I have a million other things um, that comes to mind, like steps to securing your identity and infrastructure. It's you need to strengthen your credentials. You need to reduce the attack surface. You need to automate threat response and like all of these things. Um, and there's a lot of like cloud intelligence features built into this. Uh, but I think that is something for more for a deep dive. So to recap, my, like my top features, MFA, you need to have that enabled and enforced. You get that by security defaults and take that one step further by enabling conditional access and then really enforce different set of policies and rules depending on conditions that, that you can meet in your organization. For example, for global admin users, they cannot sign in from everywhere or anywhere. Has to be from a specific set of devices, from a specific set of locations, and like the conditions have to be met in order to to do that. Um, so I think Azure AD has a lot of those capabilities built in, uh, but I'm sure you have a, a bunch of additional things that you're thinking about right now. Yeah, I, I like security defaults definitely because it gives you a default secure stance without really needing to spend a lot of time in in configurations. If you enable it, and I think for new subscription, new tenants, it's enabled nowadays by default. But if you have this enabled, or if you later enable this, just make sure you don't lock yourself out. So go through the conditional access policies to ensure that you always have at least one admin account that can bypass some of the uh, limitations, just in case you do something fancy like let's not allow logging in from any other place than the office network and then you're at the home office your vpn to the office network doesn't work you cannot log into azure and and you've locked yourself out uh one side note here uh for anybody who starts working with azure today they will be exposed to something called microsoft entra but for people who have been working in, in Azure for five years or, or 10 years or a little bit more even, they're like, what's what's Entra? I have Azure AD, that's the thing I do. So this is a marketing brand where Azure AD is part of Microsoft Entra. So the services are Azure Active Directory, the Entra Permissions Management, which is the multi-cloud permission management, and Entra Verified ID. The the thing here is that if you go to the Entra portal, not Azure portal, but the Entra portal, you get one single portal for all things identity. 
as opposed to if you go to Azure portal, you get 2000 different portals for all sorts of different services. So, so if you see Microsoft Entra, don't be confused. You still get to do the same things through there, or you just go to Azure portal and click Azure AD and you still get to do everything you need. Uh, you mentioned security defaults, you mentioned MFA multi-factor authentication. Obviously, that's the thing we've been talking about for 10 years. You need to enable it. Um, one thing that I would also highlight from Azure Active Directory, all things security, is the logs. Do you have the signing logs? Do you have the audit logs? There's perhaps no point in opening the logs manually every day to see if there's something shady happening in there. but Create a plan on how do you manage the logs? What's your long-term store for the logs? And how do you go through the logs? And how do you do troubleshooting? Perhaps you enable security defaults. Perhaps you block legacy authentication. Now somebody's complaining they cannot open email on their mobile device. So you go to signing logs to see, oh, they're doing a single factor authentication. They cannot do MFA because the mail client doesn't support this. That's the problem. So all things logs, signing logs, audit logs, there's also diagnostic logs. Those three, you have to somehow manage and treat carefully on a weekly basis, but also when you do troubleshooting, which is often ad hoc happening right now, somebody's complaining about something and you need to treat those. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think like around logs, I think this is this is a, a kind of an obvious thing when you've worked with maintaining Azure and work with security insights and things like that. Like I'll, anything that happens in Microsoft Sentinel, for example, which we had an episode uh, some time ago, and anything that happens across the ecosystem of all of these security products and and all other products in Azure are tying into audit logs, signing logs in this case, or like resource diagnostic logs and. That's really where the power of machine learning and all the, the cloud intelligence comes to life because you just shoot all the logs in, enable all the logging. Then in, in Azure ID, you have these things like risky sign-ins that comes from the logs as well. Like, oh, we noticed that there's now a risky sign-in or a risky user. It's a risky sign-in because this user, like Tobias, usually signs in from Sweden from his home office, but now he's signing in from Sri Lanka. Right or some other location that doesn't really match my pattern of access. So there's a lot of those things coming out of like the logs of, of different systems. So I think that's a valid point. And log retention being something that, you know, the bigger the organization, the more important that is. Um, because the, the amount of data that you persist and save will grow and that will steal a lot of disk space as well. Um, so I, I think having a plan for that, like what is the retention is important. But also, if you work with regulatory compliance and work with different, um, you know, security frameworks, if you want to call them that, or, or compliance framework, there will be like a mandatory requirement to pass the SOC 2 or pass the ISO 27001. Will say that any logs of this type, any security logs, signing logs, they have to be persisted for X days, X months, X years. So that's also something to think about and and try to do that as early as possible, you know, it's easy to change after the fact, but the more logs you have, the bigger and better picture you can paint of your security posture when you start diving into the more kind of complex and analytical aspects of the tools um, to really dive into uh, what's going on. So very good point. 
So we've covered Defender for Cloud, Azure AD, and there's plenty of capabilities in Azure AD. The last one, the third one on securing Azure in three steps is Privileged Identity Management or PIM. And we did think through what the third one should be. And, and, and we settled on PIM mostly because this is technically a part of Azure AD, yes, but it's taken separately into use because it requires an Azure AD Premium P2 license. And there's additional security capabilities like Microsoft Sentinel, Defender for Cloud Apps, and all sorts of things. But for basics, I often feel those are a little bit more advanced capabilities as opposed to PIM, PIM being a super crucial central capability. Toby, what's your experience and past with PIM? Is this something you use on a daily basis or is this something that's, that, that you don't really have a need for? That's a really good question. And, and the, the answer here varies depending on like what part of my past we're talking about. Uh, today, I, I'm not interacting much with PIM myself because I, I don't manage those type of resources right now. But I really love it from the aspect of the of the capabilities it has. But because it requires Azure AD Premium P2 license, I know a lot of customers did not use it because they were not on, on this type of license. For some enterprises, it was obvious they need to have it. For others, they made a decision, like there's always a trade-off. And I think we talked about this when we talk about the well-architected framework and like how security infrastructure, things like that. There's always a trade-off around cost and security. And, and there's trade-offs around many other areas and aspects as well. But this is a very common one because you will get a budget. Usually you get a budget and someone will say, well, this is your budget. You need to maintain all the infrastructure. And then you have the CISO come in and say, well, we also need to secure it the right way. So you have like dependencies on securing it, but you also have dependencies on the maximum amount of you know, money you can spend on the project or, or you know, setting things up or, or maintaining this continuously. So I know a lot of customers were not on the P2 license. Imagine you are. Some of the benefits I really liked with this is you get this kind of just-in-time privileged access to Azure ID and Azure resources. You can also assign like a time-bound access. And um, yeah, essentially that means that you set a start date and an end date for uh, how long you can access a specific resource or a set of resources. You can require approval to activate privileged roles like a global admin role. You can enforce multi-factor authentication to activate any of the roles. Uh, you can use justification to understand why users activate. So when someone comes into uh, to PIM and says, hey, I need access to this thing, they need to justify it. And then someone based on the justification can you know, approve or reject. Um, you get notifications when privileged roles are activated. You can do access reviews to ensure that users uh, you know, still need to have those roles. And if they don't, you revoke them or remove them. You can also download the audit history for internal or external uh, audits. So coming back to compliance that I really love, you know, I've worked a lot with compliance. When the auditor comes and say, well, we are going to need the audit logs for anyone who signed in as an admin, then if you have this, you can download the audit history and just hand that over and say, well, here's the requests and here's the justifications, here's the approvals and all that stuff. And also prevents the removal of like the last active global administrator and privileged role administrator role assignments. So there are some good benefits on the technical side here. Um, so that like top of mind, those are the kind of the capabilities on my mind. I, I like this and, and with PIM, 
I, I feel the uh, the sort of pushback when you start deploying and, and planning for the deployment, the pushback sometimes comes from admins, because if you are an admin, you are used to having that privilege at all times. You log into Azure portal, you are the global admin 24-7. And the whole point with PIM is that you shouldn't be a global admin 24-7 but perhaps you should be a global admin for two hours or eight hours or two weeks. But once you're done with those admin tasks, that you should get rid of that additional access token. The approach that I see some companies use, they do not deploy PIM, but they have separate admin accounts. So when they access Azure portal, they, they use a different account and they have MFA or something else to secure that. It's fine as well, but you also need to then monitor what's happening with those admin accounts because there's no approval happening for when you need to raise your your access for a certain period of time. So the three services, Defender for Cloud, Azure AD Security Settings, and Privileged Identity Management in this order, I would say. I, I think that's that's all we have for, for this back to basics on, on securing Azure. The last bit, the unexpected question, and Toby, you asked me last week, so so this week it's my turn. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. If you had an empty apartment, what is one thing you would have to have in there? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I usually say that, you know, I'm, I'm a philanthropist by heart, and like my default answer here is not you could think like, oh, I would need to have an office downtown or I would, you know, have a, an apartment I can go have a party in or uh, when we go downtown with the family, we can have a sleepover. But I think what I would want to do is I would furnish the apartment, put, you know, a, a bed and a couch and a TV and whatever. And then I would uh, sublet it or or just for free uh, rent it out. I don't know if you rent it out for free, but you let people stay in it for free over periods of time for people that are not as privileged as we are with financial situations and you know that that may not have the the good position we're in so they can get a roof over their head so if if there's an apartment an empty apartment that we don't have any use for at the moment i would say put some basic stuff in there let people use it to get a roof over their head maybe give them a warm meal something like that so the the toby shelter maybe some, or, um, something like a small effort to uh, to to give something to the people around you and there's a lot of people who who need help and that are not in in our situation so i i think somehow giving back to uh, to society in uh, like a welfare type of manner would be a good idea that sounds really nice for a moment i thought you would say a sofa bed but but you <laughs> you, you said a bed and a sofa so we're good all righty thank you for joining us and let's hear more next week all right see you then Thank you.